Praise God. Good morning. Uh, glorious morning. May the Holy Spirit overwhelm you as you read and listen. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, Come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was preparation day that is the day before the Sabbath. 
So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus's body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, mother, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus's body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, guide us now. Bless this time as we consider your word. Speak to our hearts in the way that each one of us needs to be spoken to. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You know, if I was to tell you um, that I went to a restaurant last night, just to, I didn't, but if I did, um, and I said, oh, and my server was, you know, Eric Johnson, the, the husband of Betsy, you know, the, the father of uh, Eva and Jake. What your, what your first question would be is, oh, oh, who, I'm sorry, who, who are Eva and Jake? And I'd say, well, they're, you know, they're, I just told you, they're Eric's, my server's kids. And you'd be like, well, yeah, but I mean, who's Eric? Well, he was my server last night. And you kind of be confused because your assumption that I gave you his name and his kid's name and his wife's name is that somehow you know them. That, you know, maybe you know them or a friend knows them or they go to some school where your kids go or they're famous for some reason. You assume that I have some reason for mentioning all their names very specifically. And why do I say that today? Because if you notice in the reading Liana just gave from Mark, there's a loads of names. And the question is, why are all these names here? And I actually think when we grasp why all those names are there, we'll see it actually has an incredible impact or should 
have an incredible impact on our life today. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to talk about why all these names are here and then draw the line as to why that should have a real impact, a profound impact on every day of our lives today. So why why is Mark littering these names? That's what we're talking about today. So you might say first going, what what are you talking about littered with all these names? I I didn't catch that. Well, just in that account, let's go up and just take a look at some of these names listed. Off the bat, certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, some woman watching from a distance, among them Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger, and of Joseph and Salome, Joseph of Arimathea, uh, and it goes on. When they rolled the stone away, it said Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph this time, and saw where he was laid. Then just the very next verse, it's Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome. That is a lot of names. Pull it down. And the question comes, and that's strange for a number of reasons, right? One of the first things that makes that big list of names very strange is none of them are mentioned anywhere else in the gospel. Like if you're telling a story about something, you tend to bring up like if they brought up Peter or, you know, John or even that James, you'd go, oh, well, I've been reading about them all through the whole, you know, the whole gospel. And I understand why you mention them now, but none of these folks are mentioned anywhere else. This is it. You may go, well, I've heard of Mary Magdalene. Listen, Mary Magdalene, uh, you, you probably, she's a prominent figure in movies about Jesus, but not a very prominent figure in the gospels, you know, just, you know, uh, scant attention at all. This is where she's mentioned. So the question is why here? And another thing that's odd too is, when Mark would talk about events, he tends to, he doesn't give people's names. He just kind of describes them. Like for instance, if you look in Mark two, for instance, if we take a look at that, this is typical of how it is throughout his gospel. He says, some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. And Jesus saw their faith. He said to the paralyzed man, again, no name. You don't know who this person is. Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some Teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He blasphemies. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So in that account there, right, he doesn't tell you who any of these people are. doesn't give you their names. He gives you actually the information you need to know, that they were, you know, the person was paralyzed. They were teachers of the law. There was a crowd. Only that detail which you need to get. And that's what it does as well in uh, in the account that Liana read also is, you know, talked about the centurion or talked about the, you know, the, the robbers or the thieves on the, and without any names. And what else is particularly strange about this is Mark of all the gospel writers is in an incredible rush and leaves out all kinds of detail. Actually, he uses the word um, immediately, or it's translated suddenly 41 times in his gospel. You know, as opposed to like once in Luke and five times in Matthew, in Mark, everything happens quickly. Immediately they went here, immediately went there, suddenly they went over this way. And he's just incredibly brief and quick and moving, 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 moving. And sometimes you're going, Mark, chill out. You know, it's like in the first 15 verses of Mark, right, which is the first third of the first chapter. He, he introduces his gospel. He, you know, gives an Isaiah prophecy about John the Baptist is coming. John the Baptist's ministry. Jesus gets uh, baptized. 
you know, the voice of God comes down and speaks over Jesus as the Holy Spirit falls on him. Jesus gets to, you know, goes into the desert and John the Baptist gets arrested all in the first 15 verses. You're like, whew, just, just, you just like pause for a little bit here, Mark. But then you come to the end of the gospel and it gives all this detail. You're like, what are you doing? I mean, you know, uh, think of Simon the Cyrene. I mean, Jesus, you can imagine, oh, the, the, you know, how, how important it was the, the flogging of Jesus and the mocking of him. And then it says to take him to the cross. But, you know, Mark stops in the middle and, and inserts this thing that he had to carry this. And this man took the cross, right, which would have been probably a cross beam, you know, because the other things were up. But why, why even stop at this guy? Why insert that into your story? But distance is inserted. He says, oh, and his name was Simon who took that. Oh, he was Simon of Cyrene, right? This place in probably where Libya is. And then it says the father of Alexander and Rufus. It's like, what do I care? I mean, what does that have to do with the whole thing? What is that about? And he does it again and again through all these stories. You know, he mentions, you know, Mary and all these witnesses there. What is going on? Why include all this detail? Well, actually, you may have figured it out already. It's, it's fairly obvious why he includes that detail. And, uh, you know, all scholars would agree. I mean, the assumption is, is that the readers knew who these people were. That's why they were included that they were known people. It's actually one reason why different gospels include different names because they were for different audiences. So some of the people, but the idea that you knew who these people were, but there's something important. Notice it shows up at a very specific part of the gospel as well, that all these names get thrown out and it's right around, right? The death, burial, and resurrection. And if you actually see the way it's structured, these people whom we these people who, you know, folks know are all put right around those different places. So what you see is like, why mention Simon of Cyrene? Because you would have known who this person was, right? That he could testify as well that this Jesus, it was Jesus who was mocked and beaten so badly that he could not even bear this cross. And, uh, and Alexander and Rufus, right, were obviously figures that were there saying, I know who this person is. You know, we, we saw this thing. Maybe Alexander Rufus saw it, you know, they because they were probably in Passover. They probably came from Cyrene, you know, as all the pilgrimage come for the Passover. Maybe they were there seeing their dad actually oh, take that. And they were obviously figures which people knew. Alexander and Rufus, it was their dad who took that. And we saw that he was flogged. We saw what happened to him. And, uh, and one thing also, you might say, well, what do we know about all these different people at the end? We, we actually don't know almost anything about these people still because some of these names are common, but Rufus was a name that shows up in a later letter as a potential leader of the early church. And one reason also why you see Mary mentioned so much, you know, that names were very common back then. And, uh, you know, according to when you, you add up all the names and all the different ancient writings, people estimate that, you know, maybe as many as 25% of women in Israel at that time were named Mary. And so you have to keep on stressing, you know, Mary Magdalene, which was a place of Magdala, you know, and uh, Mary of jo you know, mother of Joseph the younger and of James. And so which Mary are you talking about? So they're very specific as you would know who these different people are. I know that one. And here it's saying 
Simon or Alexander Rufus, they knew they were witnessing to the crucifixion. And then you go to the next thing and actually you can see again, each one of these sections, crucified, dead and buried, like the first, like here, when it mentions the women right here, it says with a loud cry, Jesus breathes, breathed his last. This is after, you know, my God, my God, why is thou forsaken me? Seeing him on the cross, this whole scene and the curtain of the temple torn and a centurion, right? Now he's a generalized name, right? The centurion who stood there in front of Jesus, saw he died. He said, surely this man was the son of God. And then it says here, some women were watching from a distance. Among them were basically these people you know. Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph, right? This helps you understand which Mary this is. And Salome, which by the way, became also, her name became very common in early church writings first few centuries. And so she probably became a very uh, important figure that people were aware of. She saw it. But here they're saying the crucifixion, right? And that he died on the cross. You go to the next slide and you see Joseph Arimathea showing up and it talks about him being this really important member of the Sanhedrin, right? The prominent member of the council, the Sanhedrin himself waiting for the kingdom of God. So he was again, known to the community. And here's an interesting thing. He goes boldly to Pilate, it says, and asks for Jesus' body and says, Pilate's surprised to hear that he's already dead. And so he summons the centurion, asks him if Jesus had already died. And the centurion, right? He learns from the centurion it was so and gives the body to Joseph. Now, what's so critical about that is you see, essentially, he's bearing testimony to this. That Joseph's saying, listen, Pilate wanted to make sure he was dead before he got off the cross. He summoned the centurion up and the centurion, uh, centurion testified that he was, in fact, dead. And actually, Centurion, if he was wrong here, would have been at a cost of his own life. And so he's basically saying, I can testify that Pilate even confirmed it with a Centurion. Jesus was dead, right? He didn't swoon. He didn't pass out. Again, this is always to testify to the truth of this gospel message. He was dead. He was wrapped. He's put in linen. He rolled away a stone, the entrance of the tomb. And now once again, Mary Magdalene and Mary, this one now a different one, the mother of Joseph. They saw specifically where he was laid. They saw the stone roll over it. They could confirm to it. And then in the very next verse, it says, again, it mentions the names again, which again, if it's telling a story is very awkward, but if you're trying to very carefully show witnesses to an account, it makes sense. Because now it says now two days, you know, here it was on, you have the day of the crucifixion, the Sabbath, and then on the third day when the Sabbath was over, once again, Mary Magdalene is there and a different Mary, Mary, the mother of James and Salome again. They specifically came and then they testify to the empty tomb, which is really where Mark leaves his thing. That the tomb was empty and the vision saying of the angel who says he is risen. And it's these, these people, you know, in this account are saying, you, you know, these folks, they saw it, they saw it, they saw it. Why? Therefore, you know, it's true. That's the big thing that they're trying to say is this is real. And this is why also why Mark says this is the critical piece that's testified to his resurrection. I mean, his, his, his crucifixion, his death and his burial and resurrection that you can trust these accounts. And, uh, and when we read it today, the idea is that now we can trust these accounts. And you might say, well, gosh, you know, I, I have to be honest with you, you know, that doesn't, you know, it, it, 
I don't, you know, it's not something I would necessarily trust. I mean, this is something 2000 years ago, people writing this, that's not that persuasive to me. But I would actually challenge you and say, this is how you know anything. Any kind of history you think happened, right? How'd you find out about it? It's written about somewhere. And you have people who've looked at it, try to figure out the veracity and the authenticity of what's written. If you want to say that, do you think Abraham Lincoln was shot? You look at that and go, why do I believe that? Because people wrote it and other people wrote it. And you compare those accounts and there's things which are authentic about those accounts and things which are not authentic and whether you believe it or not. When people say, did the Holocaust happen? Do you know, there's people now who are going, well, I don't, I don't believe the Holocaust happened. We say, well, you have all, because so many people are actually, you know, people who came there and freed the camps and others who are in the camps are dying. And they're going, now more and more, we're just having these written accounts or video accounts. And people have to say, do I believe them to be true or not? So really, this is how you judge everything. And so that's what makes this account so amazing is the level of authenticity, because there's no reason to put these names in, right? If you're just telling some kind of story or a feel-good story about Jesus, um, or, or it's kind of like not meant to be taken true, or if it's meant to be understood as fiction, you'd never put all these names which are irrelevant to the story, right? It, it, is, it has everything, it, it reeks at you that this is, this is meant to be understood as true reality that you trust your life on. And someone say, well, maybe they faked the authenticity. What's really interesting is one thing that makes it even more authentic for our, for our modern audience is they include things which would have hurt the credibility at the time, you know, including women in there. I mean, I, I am not saying anything bad about women. I'm just saying at the time that would have reduced credibility, not increased credibility because women's testimonies were often not even accepted or, you know, old wives tale, you know, they weren't. So why would you make them the ones who witnessed the resurrection? Of course, the only reason is if they did, in fact, but it also even gives you an interesting hint of the prominence of women in the early church, uh, which again, so countercultural, but I don't want to go on. I don't want to go down that stream today, but it's actually fascinating. The very inclusion of them shows the way women were, you know, the incredible role of leadership within that culture and within the early church. But again, as terms of authenticity, the inclusion of women makes this like you look at this and go, there's no way this text is not true. But again, we so, so you go, okay, so it's this text way back, back there that's true. No, you see, it's aligned to our lives today. This is how God entered the world. You know, that he died on the cross and he rose and that he so loved the world that he made redemption for our sins, that we could be forgiven, that he knows us, he loves us, and that we can follow him and have hope in him. That's the grass, uh, that's the amazing thing. That's the thing we declare today our hope in the risen Lord. And hope, hope is, I know we use that word, but it is a lame word in English. You've got the, the biblical idea of hope, right? Hope in English is like ridiculous, right? If you said, you're, if you said, I'm coming over to your house tomorrow, that's certainty. If you say, I hope you're coming over to my, you'll come to my house tomorrow. You're like, well, you know, it'd be nice if I did. It's a lovely thought that I would come over to your house tomorrow. Maybe it'll happen. Maybe it won't. That's hope in English. That is not hope in a biblical idea. Hope is a certainty of things happening, a certainty in which you orient your life towards that. You know, you, um, it's, it's a kind of way in which let, let's say, uh, two people got engaged and, you know, some, maybe it was, you know, your own child 
not engage. And, and you begin to orient your life towards this future event of their marriage. And you begin to plan like that. And even you plan that their life continues on afterwards, right? It's that thing in the future, your certainty of that you begin to orient your life around. That's what hope is in the scripture. When it talks about in Hebrews 11, it talks about faith. It says faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. God calls us to walk in faith in a sense of certainty, certainty of this hope, certainty that it's true, that it's real. Now, hope is probably needed today as much as it's ever been needed. For people who study these things, they would say that our, our generation right now, this moment we're living in, is one of the most despairing moments actually, uh, since World War II. Imagine back then, how despairing it was coming out of the Depression and seeing the whole world at war and how powerless everyone felt. It was an incredibly despairing moment. And they would say, we have not reached another moment of sort of collective despair of people or a sense of hopelessness for the future as we have at this very moment. They say people generally are very fearful lives. You know, if it's the politics of the moment, if it's since our environment is breaking down or our, our culture is being seeming to unravel before us, that people live in fear of what they can say or don't say or what's happened in their past coming up and destroying my life now. People are scared for the world that their kids are being raised in, into. People are frightened. And, and the irony is, is that we're living in a time of unprecedented physical health and material prosperity. You know, aren't those the great hopes, right? That we could live longer and that we can have more stuff. Isn't that what's supposed to give us hope? But instead people live fearful lives because they realize they can't hope in those things. That there's kind of false hopes. And people thought if I find a leader, a leader who will lead our country, somehow this world will get fixed. And now people are like, there's no one we can, no one's gonna fix this stuff. You know, or people think, you know, science or technology, we've often thought that that would somehow fix it. And now it feels like every new science and technology actually is creating more kind of scary danger as much as it's helping, it's hurting. Actually, it's funny when people want organic food or want a paleo diet, what are they essentially saying? I want to eat back before there was technology. That's when I thought it was safe, not this new messed with stuff. And, it, and the idea is that all these hopes have been kind of dashed. And we, and we think, what do I hope in now? And then people go, what about God? You know, God, where are you in the midst of this, this world that feels scary to me? And that's the whole point is that he always says, I never wanted you to trust in that stuff anyway. That trust was, that was never trustworthy. In some ways, people were better off when they died young because they knew they couldn't trust that their lives are just going to keep on going and they couldn't trust in every doctor to do it or they couldn't trust in all the scientists to somehow make my life right. They knew they could only trust in God and that their life here was temporary. And that's what God wants us to pull back to in the midst of the spirit going, there is hope we can have. He is there. And it's not just this event that he rose way back then. It's the idea that he, he led the way that we will rise to be with him. And not just this, it's not just that, oh, I know I'll live at the end. That's not the hope. The hope is that it's, he's alive. That power that raised Jesus from the dead is alive and active today. That God is present, that he is here with us, that we are not alone and that we can make it through the despair that, you know, that evil is not victorious. 
that our, our illness and our death is not the end of the story. And it allows you to live in a confidence and in a joy and a laying down your life as Jesus laid down his life for us. You know, as he sacrificed so we can do it for one another because we live in this incredible hope that's, that, um, that points our life together. You know, this last week, um, Nick, my wife, Nikki, and I, we lost a good friend who passed away this, today. And actually you, her husband, Len, came and spoke to our church at the start of uh, Lent. And his wife, Hallie, passed away. But his uh, daughter gave one of the most beautiful sort of uh, reflection on that and owed to her on Facebook. And I just want to flash that, this, what she posted. She said, I am heartbroken to share that my beloved mom passed away this morning after a courageous faith-filled battle with MSA, multiple systems atrophy. Dad, Betsy, her sister, and I were by her side as she took her last breath and slipped into Jesus's arms, a gift I do not take for granted for one moment. I'd like to share these words from a letter she wrote to Betsy and me when she was first diagnosed, a letter she instructed us not to read until after her death. And I'll read, this is part of that letter again, when she was first diagnosed, she said, don't read this until after I die. She said, her mom said to her, let me first say that trite, often unhelpful saying, I'm sorry for your loss, but honestly, I am. I wish I could hug you and let you hear and feel the mother blessing. Oh, honey, it's going to be all right, because it is going to be. In spite of the pain you're feeling now. Someone told me grief for a loved one's like an amputation. You never forget the loss, but the pain slowly goes away and you eventually learn to survive without the limb. You learn new ways to do things and life goes on. I'm not sorry for myself. My journey has ended. My story is complete and we know who wins. I wish I could describe to you the glory and joy I'm experiencing. But now as I write to you, I only know it by faith in the Lord Jesus who loves me and has never left my side. I'm only sorry you had to watch me go through this hideous disease. And she goes on to say, I'm sorry too, mom. I'm so sorry for all the hardships and indignities you endured these fast last few years. And yet I'm also not sorry because as dad told you today, you taught us how to live and now you've taught us how to die. I'm in awe of you, mom. You are a wonder in life and in death, and I will love you forever and ever. That's the life of hope. You know, the, 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 a life which sees and lives this world in light of this assurance of this reality. And he says, it doesn't matter what happens in this world. It doesn't matter what happens to us. All of us will suffer and struggle, but he is with us. He'll never leave us or forsake us. He is by our side, always present. And when in his moment, at the time he wants, he will take us to be with him. That's what the resurrection about. That's the hope of the resurrection. That's why Mark included all these details. So you can be certain today and trust that Jesus is here, he rose from the dead, and you will as well, and he is here for you as he invites you to place your hope in him. May that be your resurrection call, that he is risen indeed, 
Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we praise you and exalt you and thank you, Lord. Thank you that you don't, that we are not alone, that you are with us even now where we sit. And Lord, you know our, our fearful hearts. You know our sometimes despairing hearts. Lord, renew us in hope that we can walk through the hardship in the firm and certain knowledge of your love for us and your hand upon us and upon this world. Let us walk in the resurrection power of the living God. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.